Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome, welcome. This is Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thank you for sharing out the podcast and writing us reviews. It's super helpful to get the message out about Mission Driven Living to as many moms as possible. The community is such a huge support and the friendships that are being built are so meaningful. It's really a joy to watch. So let's let more moms know about what we're doing here. Today I have the privilege of talking to you about someone who I really love. I read his autobiography, which I didn't realize until recently he has three autobiographies. I didn't know anybody had three. The one that I've always read is his first one, written in 1845, and I've read it several times, and I just decided recently to go back to it. I was thinking about him and thought, boy, that would probably make a good mission-driven story, and of course it does. So I'm excited to talk to you about his story. You probably have heard of him, maybe not. His name is Frederick Douglass, and we're going to talk about him for the next few minutes. He was born in Tuckahoe, Maryland in 1818 in Talbot County, a slave. His mother was Harriet Bailey, and they're pretty sure she knew a little bit how to read His father was white. That's all he knew. His suspicion was that it was his master, but that was never confirmed. He was taken away from his mother pretty soon after he was born because the practice was that the grandmothers who couldn't work in the fields anymore took care of the young children, so he was placed on a different plantation where he was cared for and his mother was somewhere else working in the fields. And it really is sweet and so um, sad that he only spent a few nights with his mother during the first few years of his life when she managed to walk several miles after work to be with him and lay by him during the nighttime and then she would walk back and work all again the next day. One of the most tragic things, there's so many things that are tragic about slavery, but of course one that's so heartbreaking is the wrenching apart of family ties and that was consciously done intentionally done so that slaves wouldn't bond with each other and they would be easier to sell off and move because they were just treated like property especially in the 1800s it seemed to just get worse over time they were treated more as indentured servants when slavery was first introduced in the 1600s and then over time the practice just became more and more vile so he was raised by the grandmothers and he had you know a pretty I don't know if you would say happy, but somewhat carefree childhood. Not much was expected of him in his early years. And he mostly would play and do some errands that were needed. Another thing that he did was keep company of the master's son and kind of entertain him. When he was seven years old, his mother became ill. He was not allowed to see her, and then she died, so he never saw her again. When he was young, I don't know exactly how old he was, but he had an aunt that was, I I think that the master, she was really beautiful in form and, and in her face, and I think that the master must have been using her, 
And so he was very possessive of her. And if she did anything that he didn't like or that seemed suspicious to him, then he would whip her. I mean, he was just a really vile person. And so he saw and heard some of those whippings and he would just run away and hide until the screaming was over. Just awful to recount. If you ever decide to have youth read this book, make sure they're older and that you read through it first. There's some uh, somewhat graphic stuff in the first few chapters that is, is hard to read. He was owned by a Colonel Edward Lloyd who had dozens of plantations, over 20 I know for sure, with buildings in the surrounding areas. He was one of the richest in Maryland. On his estate, they were given an allowance of eight pounds of pork or its equivalent in fish and one bushel of cornmeal for the entire month. The yearly clothing, they were giving clothing once a year of two coarse linen shirts, one pair of linen trousers, one jacket, one pair of trousers for winter, one pair of stockings, and one pair of shoes. And when they wore out, that was that. The children were basically only given a shirt because they weren't working in the fields. And so until he was like seven years old, he, he says you would often see children running around, you know, half naked or naked until the next allowance day. And he said because of this, they weren't given any beds. They weren't, the children were not given blankets. And he said, I suffered much from hunger, but much more from cold because he only had this one linen shirt that went to his knees and no bed. He said, I used to steal a bag which was used for carrying corn to the meal. I would carry I would crawl into this bag and there sleep on the cold, damp clay floor with my head in and my feet out. My feet have been so cracked with the frost that the pen with which I am writing might be laid in the gashes. So that was really, really awful. Um, Now, these were the rations given to these slaves, and yet Colonel Lloyd was really wealthy. He says to describe the wealth of Colonel Lloyd was almost equal to describing the riches of Job. He had from 10 to 15 house servants and owned at least a dozen slaves. I mean a thousand, excuse me, owned at least a thousand slaves. That's how he was welcomed into the world. He said that Colonel Lloyd would not hear any complaints from any of his slaves. When he spoke, a slave must stand, listen, and tremble which was literally the case. He said there was a man who worked with his horses that was between 50 and 60 years old. He said, I seen him kneel down on the cold, damp ground and receive upon his naked and toil-worn shoulders more than 30 lashes at the time. So pretty awful circumstances. He makes a comment about slave singing. He said at the time that it was considered, people thought that slaves sang because they were happy, but he said they were all tales of woe that they breathed the prayer and complaint of their souls, boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with ineffable sadness. So when he's about, well, before he gets moved, let me tell you a little bit about, they had an overseer named Mr. Gore. 
He said that no matter how innocent a slave might be, it availed him nothing. He said, to be accused was to be convicted and to be convicted was to be punished. He was cruel enough to inflict the severest punishment, artful enough to descend to the lowest trickery and obdurate enough to be insensible to the voice of a reproving conscience. Interesting to me that his name was Mr. Gore. In fact, one story he tells about this particular overseer that was so awful, one time there was a man named Demby who was working in the fields and Gore thought that he wasn't working hard enough and so he started beating him and Denby ran into a creek and wouldn't come out. And so Gore said, okay, I'm going to call you three times and if you don't come out by the third time, I'm going to shoot you. And so he proceeded to do that. He called to him. He didn't come. He did that three times. And after the third time, Gore, without consultation or deliberation with anyone, not even giving Demby an additional call, raised his musket to his face, taking deadly aim at his standing victim, and in an instant, poor Denby was no more. A thrill of horror flashed through every soul upon the plantation, excepting Mr. Gore. He alone seemed cool and collected. So that's the kind of environment that he was in. When he was about seven years old, something really amazing happened to him. He said, I regarded the selection of myself as being somewhat remarkable. There were a number of slave children that might have been sent from the plantation to Baltimore. Baltimore, there were those younger, those older, and those of the same age. I was chosen from among them all and was the first, last, and only choice. So he was sent to live with Mr. and Mrs. Sophia Auld. This was a relative of Colonel Lloyd. And I don't know if they rented the slave from him or how it worked. Uh, Mr. Auld had grown up with some slaves, but Sophia Auld had been independent. She had been a weaver. She had never had any slave under her and had the kindest heart and finest feelings. In fact, he says when... They, he got there, both of them came to the door and met me there with their little son Thomas to take, ca to take care of whom I had been given. And here I saw what I had never seen before. It was a white face beaming with the most kindly emotions. It was the face of my new mistress, Sophia Auld. I wish I could describe the rapture that flashed through my soul as I beheld it. It was a new and strange sight to me, brightening up my pathway with the light of happiness. I entered upon the duties of my new home with the most cheering prospect ahead. Now something really amazing happened there. This woman was so kind-hearted, had never had a slave before, and in her innocence of the model of slavery, she sat Frederick down, and started teaching him to read. It was just virtually unheard of. And at first, her husband didn't know that it was happening. She taught him the alphabet, and she started teaching him how to put together words until he kind of got to three- and four-letter words. And then, one day, Mr. Ald found out what was going on, and he must have spoken to Sophia in front of Frederick because Frederick recalled what he said about it, and it really changed his life. He said that it was unlawful and unsafe to teach a slave to read. This is him quoting Mr. Ald. If you give a nigger, that's what they called them at the time, an inch, he will make an L. A nigger should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. 
Learning would spoil the best one in the world. Now, he said, if you would teach that nigger, speaking of myself, how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. And then this is what Frederick Douglass says about this, about what he's just heard and watched take place between, the, between this couple. These words sank deep into my heart, stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering and called into an existence in an entirely new train of thought. It was a new and special revelation explaining dark and mysterious things with which my youthful understanding had struggled but struggled in vain. I now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty. To wit, the white man's power to enslave the black man. It was a grand achievement and I prized it highly. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with a high hope and fixed purpose at whatever cost to be able to learn to read. This conversation between the Alves served to convince me that he was deeply sensible of the truths he was uttering. It gave me the best assurance that I might rely with the utmost confidence on the results which he said would flow from teaching me to read what he most dreaded that I most desired. So now, for the first time in his life, it occurs to him that reading and education are the difference between his situation and the situation of the whites. That they can keep the slave down by keeping him ignorant. And if you can do this on a macro level in these times of slavery, then certainly you can do it on a micro level, right? You are chained by your level of ignorance and you are set free by your level of truth. And that was really so life-changing for him and so powerful to read in his own words. It just transformed everything for him and he knew that the way to freedom was through self-education and that he must learn how to read and that would enable him to eventually free himself. In being sent there and taught to read, he said, he considers this as an event, as a special interposition of divine providence in my favor. I should be false to the earliest sentiments of my soul if I suppressed the opinion. I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicules of others, rather than be false and incur my own abhorrence. And we've talked about that. We've got to be honest about what we know is right and true so that we can really like ourselves. From my earliest recollection, I date the entertainment of a deep conviction that slavery would not always be able to hold me within its foul embrace. And in the darkest hours of my career in slavery, this living word of faith and spirit of hope departed not from me, but remained like ministering angels to cheer me through the gloom. This good spirit was from God, and to him I offer thanksgiving and praise. One of the things that we always do on these Mission Driven Story podcasts is highlight the laws of life mission, especially the four foundational laws and how these individuals live them, live them. Now, 
Frederick Douglass had little formal spiritual training and until he was older could not read and of course could not study the Bible, but he nurtured a relationship with God and he remained true to his own conscience and in that way built himself spiritually and gave God the glory in instances where he felt divine favor and intervention in his life. He took advantage of opportunities to grow. And as he embraced the truth that he had, more truth was opened up to him. And so that is the pathway for all of us from ignorance to greater, to greater light, to greater knowledge and greater truth. So he dis- determined this was his one purpose in life was to learn to read. And because he had quite a bit of freedom at the Alds, he would run errands for them and they fed him well, which was another thing we'll talk about in a minute. Often slaves weren't fed well. He was fed well there and there was always bread in the kitchen. He was always welcome to it. So he concocted this plan. And the plan was when he went on an errand, he would take extra bread with him. And he would go to an area where there were poor white children. And he would go to the boys and offer them food in exchange for a reading lesson. And of course, even though they were poor, they were usually had some education at a local schoolhouse. And so they were in a position to be able to teach him to read in exchange for food. He said, the bread I used to bestow upon the hungry little urchins who in return would give me that more valuable bread of knowledge. He also wanted to learn to write, so he concocted this really clever little game. He had learned four letters from people on the ships because of how the carpenters would hew them into the wood. He had watched them. And so he commenced copying them until he knew these four letters. And then when he was around uh, white boys again, he would say, hey, I know how to write. I bet you don't. And they would say, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. And so then he would show them a few letters and they, and he proved to them that he knew how to write. And then he would tell them to prove to him that they knew how to write and they would write other letters and he would copy what they had done. So he started to get more and more acquainted with how to write the letters he had been learning. And then he did a handful of things. He found, you know, just whatever he could, he wrote on board fences and brick walls and pavement with chalk. Um, I then commenced and continued copying the italics in Webster's spelling book. And then by this time, the little boy he was taking care of had gone to school and he had learned to write and he had little copy books and he had brought them home and they got shown off to the family and then set aside. So he had the ingenuity to sneak sneak them out of whatever place they had been laid and he would write and copy it out in all of the margins of the paper. He said he got to have pretty good penmanship. When he was a little bit older, maybe 10, 11, 12, he got his hands on what's called the Columbian Order. It was a collection of political essays, poems, and dialogues that had been first published in 1797 and it included many speeches celebrating Republican virtues and promoting patriotism. He carried this around with him everywhere he went. He just absorbed it. He just took full advantage of being able to read this. It says the Columbian order became symbolic not only of human rights, but the power of eloquence and articulation. 
So this is one of the things that he found in this Columbian order that had a huge impact on him. He said, I found in it a dialogue between a master and his slave. The slave was represented as having run away from his master three times. The dialogue represented the conversation which took place between them when the slave was retaken the third time. In this dialogue, the whole argument in behalf of slavery was brought forward by the master, all of which was disposed by the slave. The slave was made to say some very smart as well as impressive things in reply to his master, things which had the desired though unexpected effect for the conversation resulted in the voluntary emancipation of the slave on the part of the master. It's interesting to me that it was published in America in 1797 and was had these speeches that were anti-slavery, so it must have circulated a lot more in the North. But it was really empowering for him, but on the other hand, it was very painful for him, and he he, sp- he speaks several times about the great burden that he felt he bore now that he had been educated and enlightened, now that he understood even more how wrong slavery was, and he understood too, I think, that the white people understood better than they wanted to admit, even though they would justify their behavior using you know sparse biblical verses. In the end, of course, it was wrong, and they were justifying their behavior. And he said, As I read and contemplated the subject, behold, that very discontentment which Master Hugh had predicted would follow my learning to read had already come to torment and sting my soul to unutterable anguish. As I writhed under it, I would at times feel that learning to read had been a curse rather than a blessing. It had given me a view of my wretched condition without the remedy. I envied my fellow slaves for their stupidity. Anything, no matter what, to get rid of thinking. It was this everlasting thinking of my condition that tormented me. There was no getting rid of it. The silver trump of freedom had roused my soul to eternal wakefulness. Freedom now appeared to disappear no more forever. So after he was there a few years and had mastered reading at about age 12, he was taken back to Colonel Lloyd's house and um, he was then with Thomas Ald, who was an awful master, much worse than the, than, uh, the other Mr. Ald that he had been with. I, I can't remember if they're brothers, they're related somehow. And he basically starved his slaves. He didn't give them nearly enough to eat. And, he, and Frederick talks about feeling hungry all the time. So he concocted a plan where when he was supposed to take care of the horses, he would let them loose and they would run off out of, you know, the, off the property And he would follow after them until they wandered to a neighbor's home and there were a couple kindly neighbors who would always feed them. And so he could be sure of getting something to eat. But uh, Thomas Ald caught on to this behavior and knew what he was doing. And so he would punish him and punish him and he wouldn't stop because he was just so hungry. And sometimes they would try to steal food too because they just didn't have enough to eat. So the solution for Colonel Lloyd and Thomas Ald and some of these other, you know, people in the surrounding areas to slaves who wouldn't be obedient was they would send him to a man named Edward Covey to, quote, break them. Now, Edward Covey was one of these awful, I mean, there's so many awful slaveholders, but he was kind of poor and he couldn't afford very many of his own slaves. 
So what he did to remedy that problem was he developed a reputation as someone who could break slaves because he was so awful and sneaky. He was always um, deceiving them. He would sneak up on them when they to catch them not working. He was ruthless and heartless in his treatment of them. They called him the snake. And his life was devoted to planning and perpetrating the grossest deceptions, Douglas says. And so he was sent there, contracted there for a year to be, quote, broken as a slave. It was a life-changing experience for Frederick in a couple ways. For the first part of the experience, about the first six months, he says, Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The disposition to read departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me, and behold, a man transformed into a brute. So he's beaten a lot. He said he almost didn't go a week I mean, a, a day without his back aching because he was whipped so often. And Sunday was the only day they had off. And he said he would often wander down to a river that was nearby on a summer Sabbath afternoon. And he said, with saddened heart and tearful eye, he would watch the countless number of ship sails moving off to the mighty ocean. And he would have these prayers that he would say and he would call out to God in his anguish and ask why are these ships so free and I'm fast in my chains as a slave he said oh that I were free oh that I were on one of your gallant decks and under your protecting wing alas betwixt me and you the torbid waters roll oh God save me God, deliver me. Let me be free. Is there any God? Why am I a slave? I will run away. I will not stand it. Get caught or get clear. I will try it. I had as well be killed running as die standing. Try it. Yes. God helping me, I will. So he makes this resolve that he's going to try to escape at some point, And he just keeps pouring his heart out to God and asking for divine intervention and working so hard to find the answers and then one day he has this really life-changing experience he'd been there about six months he'd kind of made this resolve that he couldn't stay a slave forever and he said you have seen how a man was made a slave you shall now see how a slave was made a man so here's what happened one day they were fanning wheat, and this is a job that requires multiple men's cooperation, and every man has a job, and they have to do that job or the whole system breaks down. And I think the what he describes here looks like heat stroke to me. And he's working and working. I'm sure he didn't have enough water. I'm sure he didn't have enough food. And it's the middle of the day. It's hot. He's exhausted, and he keeps trying to work through it because he knows he's going to get beaten if he stops working. And so he's... He says, I broke down, my strength failed me. I was seized with a violent aching of the head, extreme dizziness. I trembled at every limb. So this goes on and he fights it and fights it until finally he falls down. And so, of course, work stops. 
and there was a fan that was going as they fanned the weed and it stops and so Mr. Covey hears that he comes out from the house in the meantime Frederick has crawled into the shade to try to just deal with how he's feeling and he came over Mr. Covey comes over to where he is asks him what the problem is Frederick tells him he's sick and he can't work so he starts kicking him he kicks him several times Frederick tries to get up he falls back down he can't work and so then Mr. Covey kicks him in the head and creates this huge gas that must have been very deep because it bleeds for quite a while it gets blood all over him and then he leaves him alone he leaves him there in in all this all his blood and and pain so he's laying there and a little bit of time goes by and he starts to feel a little bit better. He's probably cooled down and his wound is doing a little bit better. You know, it wasn't life-threatening because he didn't die. And he finally decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk back to my master and I'm going to beg for him to protect me because this guy's going to kill me. And I'm his property, so he probably doesn't want me killed. So it seems logical, like this would be a good idea. But it's like seven miles away, and he's ill and injured. But he determines to do it. In fact, I think he says he doesn't even have any shoes. And he's walking over these rocks, and his feet are gashed, and there's blood all over him, and his head is, looks awful. So he walks all through the night, and he makes it there. And he sees his master, and he can tell that his master is moved by his appearance. He looks awful. And he does, at first, show a little bit of empathy. But Frederick goes on and tells the whole story. And finally, his master just says, sorry, you've been contracted out for a year and you have to go back. I'll let you sleep here tonight, but you have to go back tomorrow. You don't have any choice. And he wasn't going to protect him and he wasn't going to take any action. So he sleeps and the next morning he walks back. Still, his wounds have not been attended to. Still, he's sick with a wounded head. And before he reaches Mr. Covey's place, and you have to remember, you didn't just up and bolt. Because if you just run away, then you get caught. And then you get sold, like what's called downriver, further and further away from the free north, where conditions are harder and worse and separated from anybody you might know or love to who knows what kind of situation. And they do it as a show of force, you know, to, to scare the other slaves. So he's not just going to run away. So he's almost back to Mr. Covey's house, and he runs into another slave named Sandy who has a free wife. And it's after hours, and he's going to see this wife. It must have been a, a Saturday, I guess. And so he goes with Sandy. They feed him. They help clean him up. They talk to him. Sandy convinces him that he's got to go back to Mr. Covey. But he says, I've got a solution for you. I know how to make it so that you're never beaten again. It's really fascinating. There's a lot of superstition. There tends to be a lot of superstition among more ignorant um, people. And so he takes him out into the woods and finds a root there's this special root and Sandy hands it to Frederick and says this ever since I started carrying this root you have to carry it on your right side and if you will always carry it with you you'll never be beaten again and I've been carrying it with me for years and I've never been beaten and I don't know if he worked for Mr. Covey because if he had that would be incredible evidence of not being beaten um, 
And at first, Frederick was like, oh, this is really weird, and, you know, I don't know. But he just doesn't want to offend his friend, so he takes it, he puts it in his pocket, doesn't think much more about it. So then he returns home. And as he's walking in, now, Mr. Covey's not seen him since he kicked him. And he doesn't know, I don't know, maybe he knows he went home. Frederick Douglass doesn't say what he knows. But he's actually nicer to Frederick than he's ever been. He makes a simple, kind request of him and leaves him alone for the rest of the day. And so it gets Frederick thinking, man, maybe there is something to this route. Maybe Sandy's right. So he, uh, the next morning is Monday morning, and he gets up early in the morning. Mr. Covey asks him to attend to the horses. Now, you realize later this was because he wanted to get Frederick Douglass alone. So he goes into the barn, and he's up in the loft taking care of the horses. And as he's coming down, right there is Mr. Covey trying to tie up his legs because he wants to bind him so he can whip him. Mr. Covey seemed now to think he had me and could do what he pleased. But at this moment, from whence came the spirit, I don't know, I resolved to fight. And suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose. He held on to me, and I to him. My resistance was so utterly unexpected that Covey seemed taken all aback. He trembled like a leaf. This gave me assurance, and I held him uneasy, causing the blood to run where I had touched him from the ends of my fingers. So they get into a fight. And... He's actually fighting back, and he's determined that he's not going to let another man whip him. He would rather die than continue to stand by and be whipped. And so for two hours, they go at it. And Covey calls for help, and a couple guys come in, but they don't want to get in the middle of it, so they leave. So Covey's stuck there with him, and even though it ended, and Covey was like, oh, yeah, don't let me get a hold of you again, and all this kind of thing, Frederick Douglass knew he had won. He said he had uh, wounded Covey, he had drawn blood, and Covey hadn't drawn blood on him. And he had definitely beaten Covey much more than he had been beaten. Mr. Covey never laid the weight of his finger upon me in anger again for the whole six months I was there. He would occasionally say he didn't want to get a hold of me again. No, thought I. You need not, for you will come off worse than you did before. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom and revived within me a sense of my own manhood. It recalled the departed self-confidence and inspired me again with a determination to be free. As I, I felt as I never felt before. It was a glorious resurrection from the tomb of slavery to the heaven of freedom. My long-crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place, and I now resolved that, however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever that I could be a slave in fact. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. He also talks about how Mr. Covey didn't make a complaint against him because you're not supposed to raise your hand to a white person. Of course, you could be sent to prison and worse. 
And under normal circumstances with a regular master, that might have been the case. But it was specifically the right man at the right time because Mr. Covey had a reputation of being a breaker of slaves. And he couldn't have it be publicly known that one of his slaves had fought him for two hours and kind of whipped him. I mean, for him to go public with it, he would have to say that his slave had beaten him. And that would tarnish his reputation. He couldn't afford to do it. So he remained safe from the law, and he was never beaten again. He finished out his six months with Mr. Covey and went to a man named Mr. Freeland. This man didn't profess any specific religion, which, by the way, one of the things he talks often about is how the, some of the most religious people were the worst masters. They were some of the most brutal, violent, horrible people, and they would profess that they had come to Jesus and that they had been baptized and all this kind of thing. It was just awful. This man didn't even actually profess any religion, but he treated his slaves much more humanely. He said he fed them enough food and he gave them enough time to eat it. He gave them the evenings off and he was just much more hands-off and tolerant and just a much better master. He said he was the best master he ever had. In the meantime, Frederick concocts a plan. He wants to teach other slaves to read. So he talks to them about it and how wonderful it is and how much they should want to read. And he succeeds in creating in them a strong desire to learn to read. So he starts a Sunday school, like a Sabbath school, he, he calls it. And he said, we were trying to learn to read the will of God. They got a hold of some spelling books. And for like two or three hours every Sunday, whoever wanted to could come and this went on for several months, the better part of the year, I think, that he was mis with Mr. Freeland. And he taught them to read. He kept the school almost a year. He also did three nights a week. He would also teach slaves in their homes. This is what he said. I look back to those Sundays with an amount of pleasure not to be expressed. They were great days to my soul. The work of instructing my dear fellow slaves was the greatest engagement with which I was ever blessed. We loved each other. I loved them with a love stronger than anything I have since experienced. So this was just a beautiful experience. At one point, the Sabbath school was broken up by white people, and he just thought how disgraceful it was that they claimed to be followers of Jesus and they were unwilling to enlighten any other, you know, let these human beings be enlightened. So then he set out to, so a year went by and he was rehired by Mr. Freeland. And so after he was rehired by Mr. Freeland, this desire to escape has grown and grown and grown. And now he's like 15, 16 years old, I think. And he has him, he starts talking to the slaves about freedom. And he managed to get a handful of them, I think six at the beginning, who expressed a desire to escape with him as soon as he could come up with a plan that seemed feasible they would escape together. So he came up with a plan where they were going to, he wrote out like a day or two before what he called protections. So it was going to be the Easter holiday. And he thought it would be a good idea that they would use the Easter holiday because they would, there would be a longer time for them to get away because they wouldn't be expected back for a while. Because I think they had an extra day off or something. And so they would paddle directly up the Chesapeake Bay 
and go as far as they could and then follow the guidance of the North Star until they got beyond the limits of Maryland and be free in a free state because this is a lucky thing. He's really quite near freedom in the northern states. And he was writing up these protections that basically said it was from the master and gave them permission to spend the holidays with their families. So if anybody caught them, that's what it would say. And of course, slaves didn't know how to read, so that would be helpful that people wouldn't expect them to have something that was, you know, he had good handwriting at this point, so it would look authentic. So the morning that they're supposed to leave, he said he went out in the field and I was overwhelmed with an indescribable feeling in the fullness of which I turned to Sandy, who was nearby, and said, We are betrayed. Well, said he, that thought has this mo moment struck me. We said no more. I was never more certain of anything. Now, I have to believe that this is providential. I have to believe that this is God's protection because this spiritual warning, this warning, this assurance in both of their hearts and minds that they were betrayed enabled them to emotionally prepare. Not very much time went by before they were seized upon, but it gave them enough time to compact with each other that they would not admit to anything. And it also gave them time to determine ways that they could destroy these passes they were carrying to help protect them from suspicion. And so they were able to do that. They were taken to jail. And I want to just read you this passage about slave traders. It's so sad. We had been in jail scarcely 20 minutes when a swarm of slave traders and agents uh, for slave traders flocked into jail to look at us and to ascertain if we were for sale. Such a set of beings I never saw before. I felt myself surrounded by so many fiends from perdition. A band of pirates never looked more like their father, the devil. They laughed and grinned over us saying, ah, oh, my boys, we have got you, haven't we? That's just vile. And those are the, the people that showed up first when they got to jail. The biggest thing that they feared in prison was being separated. They knew for sure, again, being suspected was being, you know, that you were guilty. So they were certain that they were going to be sold off. They just were hoping they could somehow stay together. But actually, they separated the other men into another cell and put him in his own cell. And after a few days, the other men were picked up and taken back to, I guess, Mr. Freeland's land. And at that point, really deep discouragement set in. Because they kept him in jail. They suspected him of being the ringleader because, of course, he's the leader. He's the one that can read. He's the one that would write the passes. He was the one that taught the slaves to read, which they were really angry about. And they just, of course, assumed that it was his idea, which it was. So he's sitting there in jail and he says he knew he would never be free now. And he suspected that his situation would be even worse. But then... To my surprise and utter astonishment, my master, Captain Ald, came up, took me out, and concluded to send me back to Baltimore to live with his brother, Hugh, and to learn a trade. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This guy, this Thomas Ald, was awful. I mean, all the reports from other places in the autobiography about him are awful, and yet his heart was somehow softened enough that he decided to send him back to Hugh, of course, Hugh was upset about 
you know, his wife teaching Frederick to read, but they had a pretty good relationship and he had been treated pretty well there. And he's going to go back there and learn a trade. I think logically the stream of thought must have been, he can learn to read. He's smart. We can make the most money on him if we give him a little bit of freedom and let him work. So he goes there, he learns the trade of caulking ships for about eight months. And then he gets into this huge fight where he's officially a caulker, but the other white men don't want to caulk next to a a black man. So they all gang up on him. He gets beaten up like crazy. He goes home, he shows his master. And this shows you what a better man Hugh was. He actually went to the authorities and pled for Frederick for redress against these sailors who had beaten him up and the law wouldn't get involved. So then... Frederick gets this great idea. He says, okay, I'm out there. This is, this is how he described what was happening. I was now getting, as I have said, a dollar and 50 cents a day. I contracted for it. I earned it. It was paid to me. It was rightfully my own. Yet, upon each returning Saturday night, I was compelled to deliver every cent of that money to Master Hugh. And why? Not because he earned it, not because he had any hand in earning it, not because I owed it to him, nor because he possessed the slightest shadow of a right to it, but solely because he had the power to compel me to give it up. The right of the grim-visaged pirate upon the high seas is exactly the same. So he hates this arrangement, and he says every once in a while, Master Hugh would try to be nice and give him a little bit of the money back for pocket money, and he said all that did was make the situation worse because it was kind of like an acknowledgement that the money was actually his. So he comes up with this brilliant idea. He says, you know, let's do this. It almost is like a job he created for himself, almost like a boarding kind of situation. They determined how much it cost to take care of him and how much he was worth and how much he needed to pay to uh, Hugh Ald at the end of the week. And if he could earn more than that, he could keep it. And it was a lot It was a lot of money. It was close to the amount that he would earn anyway, but he figured if I work hard enough, I could hang on to a little bit and I could save it up for my freedom. So this plan works for a little while. And then at some point he goes to like a religious revival for a day or two And he doesn't come home. He comes home on Sunday instead of Saturday, and he's supposed to pay the money on Saturday night. So when he gets home, the master is just fuming that he was paid late and that he went somewhere without telling him. And so he says, the the contract is off, the deal's off, we're not doing that anymore. You're just going to pay me everything you make from now on. It's interesting to these men that just didn't think long-term, like, this can't go on forever. This kid, like, wants his freedom. He's smart. So then he says that Mr. Ald, you know, he says, he exhorted me to content myself, to be obedient. He told me if I would be happy, I would lay out no plans for the future. There was no way for me to escape. Just do what you're told. Just be obedient. You'll have, an, you'll have, you'll, you'll be, you'll be fine. Just don't make any plans for yourself. So he's like, that's it. I'm going to escape. In his original autobiography, published in 1845 he did not tell how he escaped because he said he didn't want to give anybody any ideas so he didn't say anything but in his later autobiography he did explain it. it's pretty simple free slaves had free papers and on them were a detailed description of exactly what that slave looked like and what happened sometimes when slaves slaves escaped is that they would lend free a free slave would lend their papers to I mean, a free black would lend their papers to a slave, 
And they would use them to escape and then get them back to them somehow. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And that person who would really risk their life to lend out their papers was left without proof that they were free, which was very, I mean, life-threatening for them. So you had to really love somebody. You had to really, it was really such an unbelievably generous act to give up those free papers. They couldn't be copied or duplicated because they had a seal on them and other things. So he was able to find a free man who was willing to let him borrow these papers, but they didn't really look anything alike, so he had to be clever how he orchestrated it. So basically, he put on a sailor's clothing. He used this free man's pass. He got onto, I was thinking it was a boat, but it might have been a train. Can't remember exactly. And when they finally came to their car or whatever, they're part of the, I think it must have been a train, when he came to that part of it, he was looking at everybody's papers and he saw that he was a sailor and he could speak sailor talk and this, condu- this, this ticket guy happened to have just like a soft spot in his heart for these for sailors. And he, he worded it in such a way that the guy didn't look closely at his papers. He said there were several close calls like that, but within like a day, he was in the North. He was in New York, he was free. He says, lots of people have asked me how I felt when I was free. I felt like one who had escaped a den of hungry lions. This state of mind, however, was very soon subsided, and I was again seized with a feeling of great insecurity and loneliness. I was yet liable to be taken back and subjected to all the tortures of slavery. This in itself was enough to dampen the ardor of my enthusiasm, and the loneliness overcame me. So he knows how dangerous it is to be who he is where he is. There are people who, for not very much money, would hunt slaves and return them to their masters for a fee, even black people. And so he couldn't really tell anybody what his circumstances were. He didn't know who to trust. He didn't know what to do. And he didn't have any money and he didn't have any way to. And what some people would do was go to black boarding houses, but then they would get turned in and sent back. And so that was a dangerous place. We just didn't know what to do. But he was really blessed again. And within about a day or two, he was standing somewhere and a man had kind of been watching him and he walked up to him and asked him, you know, did he need anything or whatever? And he just felt that he could trust this man. And he told him his circumstances and to his luck and blessing, this man was a good man. He took him home, fed him, gave him a bed. And the next day took him to a Dr. David Ruggles, who was an abolitionist. David Ruggles, he had a, had a girlfriend, Anna, who was free. They got Anna there, they got married, they gave him a little bit of money, they sent him up to New Bedford to establish their new lives together. This is what he said about New Bedford. Everything looked clean, new, and beautiful. I saw few or no dilapidated houses with poverty-stricken inmates, no half-naked children and barefooted women. The people looked more able, stronger, healthier, and happier than those of Maryland. I was for once made glad by a view of extreme wealth without being saddened by seeing extreme poverty. But the most astonishing, as well as the most interesting thing to me, was the condition of the colored people, a great many of whom, like myself, had escaped thither as a refuge from the hunters of men. I found many who had not been seven years out of their chains living in finer houses and evidently enjoying more of the comforts of life than the average slaveholders in Maryland. And that was the power of freedom. 
Every man appeared to understand his work and went at it with a sober yet cheerful earnestness which betokened the deep interest which he felt in what he was doing as well as a sense of his own dignity as a man. He couldn't get work as a caulker because there was a lot of prejudice against that, but he was able to find whatever work he needed to find, and this is what he said about it. It was new, dirty, and hard work for me, but I went at it with a glad heart and a willing hand. I was now my own master. It was a happy moment, the rapture of which can be understood only by those who have been slaves. It was the first work, the reward of which was to be entirely my own. I worked that day with a pleasure I had never before experienced. I was at work for myself and newly married wife. It was to me the starting point of a new existence. Absolutely amazing story of escaping from slavery and living those laws. He goes on, there's, there's three autobiographies of his you can read. I'll give you just a little wind down on what happened the rest of his life, the amazing things he did. Because of his commitment to God and his devotion to doing what was right, and because of the education he'd given himself, he continued to be a lifelong learner and to strive hard to help others escape and to give out what he'd been given. For three years, he worked hard to support himself, and then he went to an abolitionist meeting where he was asked to share his story, and he was immediately asked to join the movement and speak for it, which he did for six years. In the midst of that, he, he was with the Anti-Slavery Society as a lecturer from 1841 to 47. In the middle of that, in 1845, he published his autobiography, but quickly realized that he had put himself in grave danger in an attempt to educate the public on what slavery was like and how important the abolitionist cause was. He had put his own life in danger. So he ran away to Europe to England and Scotland to escape slave hunters and he fell in love with them and they fell in love with him. He said it was absolutely amazing to see how blacks were treated there and how much equality they had and the circumstances for them and the greater sense of equality that blacks enjoyed. So he went around and spoke there and the people of England and Scotland loved him so much that they pulled their resources to purchase his freedom, this band of, of followers that he had there. And so he was able to return home a free man to his family and continue the fight against slavery. He had five children with his wife, Anna. And he, let me tell you a few things that he did. <clears throat> when he got back, to America after being a free man, he started the North Star, which was a weekly paper in Rochester, New York, and he was continued to be an eloquent spokesman for emancipation. He visited Harriet Beecher Stowe in her home. He published a second autobiography. He met with John Brown, and you should go learn about John Brown if you're wondering about him, and they did not agree on what should be done to squelch slavery. So John Brown went on and did his own stuff. He, as soon as the Civil War broke out, he worked with the Union cause and met with President Lincoln to improve the treatment of African-American soldiers. He promoted them serving in the war and was a huge proponent of that. When President Lincoln died, Mrs. Lincoln gave... Frederick Douglass, Lincoln's walking stick. Isn't that cool? And uh, later in life, once the slaves were freed, he was vocal about rights for women. 
He was a federal marsher, recorder of deeds, and those kinds of things. Later in life, his wife Anna died, and in the meantime, a woman had moved next door named Helen Pitts. She was near 50, I think they were about 20 years apart in age difference, and she was white. She'd never been married, and she became Douglas's secretary, and they fell in love. She said, love came to me, and I was not afraid to marry the man I loved because of his color. They were married uh, about a year and a half after Anna died, and they were very happy, although most people were not happy about their marriage. Even abolitionists thought it was wonderful to make the slaves free, but blacks and whites shouldn't marry. But they ignored all of the people who gave them grief, had a happy marriage, and then he died suddenly of a heart attack in 1895. They didn't have any children together. But one thing that I think is so fascinating about this wife is that she absolutely adored him and felt his work was of utmost importance. He tried to leave his estate to her called Cedar Hill. There was still a mortgage on it when he died, but they didn't have the number of witnesses they needed, and so it was ruled invalid. Now, Helen went to the kids and she said, why don't we create um, a memorial to your father with this estate of his and they said no they were going to sell it and divide the money among themselves and so she managed to get a loan to collect the money raise the money and buy it and deed it to a board of trustees and establish the frederick douglas memorial and historical association and for eight years she lectured throughout the northeast and raised money for it she wasn't able to completely pay it off before she died, and so she begged the Reverend Francis Grimke not to let her work fall by the wayside in her absence, and so he raised funds to get it paid off, and then um, it was given to the National Association, the National Association, oh, sorry, no, he didn't get, he didn't pay it off. The National Association of Colored Women bought it, and now it's run by the National Park Service, and you can go on tours. So... Really, really, really amazing story about a man who put God right at the center of his life. And no matter how bad the circumstances were, he did not give up on God. He did not give up on freedom. And he did not give up on himself. And his perseverance in living those laws and educating himself helped him to really change the world. So I hope that story is in, as inspiring to you as it is to me. I highly recommend you read his autobiographies and learn more about him. He's absolutely amazing and inspiring. Thank you so much for joining me and I will see you next time.